not doing this for money. Um, I do think it'll be phenomenally financially successful, but frankly, like leaving the job in private equity makes no economic sense. You're just almost guaranteed a massive amount of money. So I had already made the decision that I wasn't doing circle up for money, even if it turns out. So what, what am I doing it for? I'm doing it to help other people. But if it's at the cost of like my daughter seeing her dad unhappy, what is the lesson that that teaches her? You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka. Now, if you're hearing this, it means you're not currently on our subscriber feed. To subscribe, go to getlatka.com. When you subscribe, you won't hear ads like this one. You'll get the full interviews. Right now, you're only hearing partial interviews. And you'll get interviews three weeks earlier from founders, thinkers, and people I find interesting. Like Eric Wan, 18 months before he took Zoom public. We got to grow faster. Minimum is 100% over the past several years. Or bootstrap founders like Vivek of Question Pro. When I started the company, it was not cool to raise. Or Looker CEO Frank Bean before Google acquired his company for $2.6 billion. We want to see a real pervasive data culture, and then the rest flows behind that. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. There, you'll find a private RSS feed that you can add to your favorite podcast listening tool, along with other subscriber-only content. Now look, I never want money to be the reason you can't listen to episodes. On the checkout page, you'll see an option to request free access. I grant 100% of those requests, no questions asked. Hey guys, a great guest today, Ryan Caldbeck. His journey started back in 1979, Vermont, all the way through Duke, through CPG brands, now into CircleUp, which is playing in a very interesting space regarding fintech, equity funds, credit funds. But much more importantly and interesting here is Ryan has been extremely transparent about the emotional journey of being a CEO. Very few people talk about it. Ryan has opened up in a you know medium post that did extremely well called Transitions. My goal after studying that is to ask Ryan questions to dive deeper on certain aspects of that so that you guys can come around, come away with real ways to manage your own emotional psyche as founders and also learn a lot about what Circle Up is doing in the fintech space and fintech in general. So on that note, Ryan Callbeck, are you ready to take us to the top? I am. Thanks for having me. So take us back, set the groundwork here. So 79, born in Vermont. Were your parents entrepreneurs as well? They weren't. Well, kind of. Um, and just to set the stage, I, don't, I can't believe I'm doing this, but it's actually 1978. So sadly <laughs> enough, I'm trying to give you an extra year. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> about to turn 42. Um, my parents were both um, lawyers um, in Vermont. They started their own firm. So in some ways, they're entrepreneurs. They started their own firm, uh, which was fairly risky for them to do that. Uh, they worked together. My, uh, you know, my mom and dad worked together. And take us, let's skip way up through through going into college. Did you go into college studying something related to finance or what you're currently doing today? Or was your path totally something else? No, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I, I, I've talked with my parents a bunch growing up um, about being a lawyer. Um, they were pretty adamant that I not do that. Um, it intrigued me. The concept of going to law school, understanding logic and how to make arguments intrigues me a lot. Um, I kind of fantasize about doing that after I'm retired, going, going to law school. But uh, their view was just you argue for your whole life, and it's a, it's a difficult way to be happy. Um, so I went to, I went to Duke, um, uh, two reasons, uh, frankly. Um, it was the best school that I got into, um, and it, uh, I loved basketball. Um, and so 
I had a decision point coming out of high school that I want to go to a school that was recruiting me to play basketball, like a division three school, or did I want to go to try to walk on at Duke? And I, I tried the, the latter. Ryan, I hear baby crying in the background. Your daughter, when she was five, said a major statement to you, which really altered how you thought about circle up. So we're going to circle back to that. Let me tie in the baby crying. Do you have four now? Is that a little, is that a fourth? I, I have, I have three and I apologize. The doors are shut and they're all the way across the house. So I apologize. No, we yeah, love so it. Three. This is how, this is how entrepreneurs <laughs> operate. There's babies around, there's garages happening. Okay. So there's three and there's a little one. Yeah. So it's uh, six years old, uh, three years old and 11 months about to be one year in uh, the day after I turned 42, he turns one. I love that. We'll dive into more of that story in a second. Take us back though to Duke. You're then graduating. When do you get associated with Bain? And I assume at some point you meet Scott Sellers and Robert Brown at Encore Consumer Capital. Take us through the first few steps you took in CPG. Uh, sure. So I, I started at, at BCG right out of uh, right out of college. Um, uh, then went to business school after two years. Uh, did an internship at Bain Capital. Um, out of that, worked at a consumer focused private equity firm called TSG, um, and then worked at another firm um, called Encore Consumer Capital, which is where Robert and Scott um, work. Um, I would say, uh, if I'm going to be you know totally transparent, um, consumer was and is not consumer products was and is not a passion for me, frankly. Um, what I loved was working on hard problems with smart people. And I thought that I had that in consulting. I did have that in consulting, but I missed ownership. And I thought I would get that in private equity. Um, that was a, a mistake, frankly. I don't think I felt as much ownership as I wanted um, and certainly not as much impact as I wanted. Um, but that's what led me to private equity. And within private equity, um, those firms were uh, where I was drawn. They seemed like, you know, seemed like good firms. So that, that's that's where I was drawn. What were you expecting going into private equity in terms of your expectations around ownership? Was it some form of carry and how is it different? What did you realize when no. you got in? Yeah, no, it was more in, in consulting, you know, at BCG, McKinsey Bain, you, um, you're hired to give advice from afar. You are a consultant, you are an advisor. And, um, there's some wonderful parts of that for someone right out of college, um, because you're learning a lot of different industries, you're learning different skill sets, you're working with absolutely brilliant people. And you're frankly, you're working on jobs that you have no qualifications to, to, to work on. Um, but, uh, I think the downside is whatever your recommendation is, you don't have to live with the results. You know, the famous McKinsey study from the 80s that gave, I think it was AT&T, the advice that the entire cell phone market would never be more than $100 million. The person who did that project doesn't have to live with the results, which is they missed out on something massive. They move on to the next thing and keep giving advice. Whether that advice is wrong or right, you, know, you find out years later, but you know, the person at McKinsey usually isn't fired for that bad decision. Um, and that frustrated me. It just didn't feel like I was in the game. It felt like I was sitting on the sidelines kind of shouting advice. Um, and I wanted to be in the game and, uh, I believed that the way to do that was become a, an investor. Um, <clears throat> I got a couple of calls in venture capital and I, I turned it down, um, because I thought you needed to be an engineer to be in VC. I don't know why I thought that uh, it was wrong. Um, uh, but that's what I thought at the time. So I went into private equity, um, and I also really like numbers and it seemed like, uh, there was a lot more. Uh, there's just a lot more data in private equity because the companies are more mature. Um, so that's what led me to, to do that. And after I was in that seat for several years, it kind of just dawned on me that, you know, you're still, you're a board member and you're a step closer to having ownership, not in the form of carry, although that's true, but also just in the form of like living with the decision, living with the, the advice you give. Um, uh, but it wasn't, uh, I eventually realized that it wasn't enough for me. I wanted to, to build something myself. 
Now, this was 2001, 2003, your Boston Consulting Group. Now, 2004, 2007, you're 27-ish years old, right? Bain Capital, TSG Consumer Partners is when you're making this transition onto boards into that sort of ownership role you just articulated. Uh, at some point in this thing, you end up at Encore Consumer Capital, which I believe is direct, investing directly in direct-to-consumer brands, CPG-related brands. Talk me through what trends were you seeing? This was 2007 to 2011. What trends were you seeing back then in CPG brands? And, and try and plant the seed here. We're going to talk about one of your core products at Circle Up, Helio, later on. When did the seeds of what now drives Helio? When did you start sort of fermenting that and laying that in your head? Was it at Encore? Yeah, uh, yes, um, a, a bit. I'll, I'll tell the background on that um, in a second. But um, first, in terms of like the trends in consumer, like this is not an inspiring answer for the audience, but it's the truth. Um, consumer at that point was just wide open. There's just very little competition. So I want to tell you that I, I was a visionary that saw different industries moving before they moved, but not at all. There just weren't a lot of funds that were doing it and you could make a lot of money. Um, it's not sexy. You know, you're never going to have an Uber that comes out of the consumer space, but reliably that industry makes a good amount of money. If you look at Cambridge Associates, which is kind of the, the data company that tracks returns by industry to private investors in the consumer space, According to Cambridge Associates, it's averaged a 22% IRR for 15 years, never negative vintage, and half the volatility of tech. The industry mints money. So there was nothing about like identifying trends at that point in time, um, frankly. Um, what I did experience in that uh, seat is, is a couple of things that led to starting Circle Up. One was um, you know, an identification that there's hundreds of investment firms around the country that love consumer and retail. Almost none of them will invest below 10 or $15 million in revenue. And so I would get calls every week from entrepreneurs I thought were talented or companies that seemed like they're doing great. They were just smaller than 10 or $15 million in revenue and we couldn't invest. And the reason that exists is in the tech space, you've got geographic density, San Francisco, New York. You also have infrastructure like TechCrunch, Y Combinator, frankly, this podcast and other ones like it. And none of that exists in the consumer space. There is no equivalent of, of TechCrunch or Silicon Valley um, or Y Combinator in the consumer space. And so what happens is consumer investors like Encore get on planes, they fly around the country uh, to go to trade shows, learn about a company, and then fly to another state to go visit that company. That math works if you're a private equity firm and you're going to write a $25 million check. It works, makes no sense at all if Nathan and I are going to start a fund and write $2 million checks. It just is not worth the time to get on planes to write $2 million checks. Um, and so everyone waits till the company's much larger, easier to identify, and you could, then you could spread your search costs across much larger investment. So that was one realization. Um, and uh, the other realization, I think, frankly, everyone in the consumer space knows that. I think um, I just wanted to do something about it, um, but everyone recognizes that problem. The other realization um, that I don't know how common it is in consumer, frankly, is the business models are all the same. Um, you know, if I'm selling you dog food or shampoo or water, the margins are different, but the basic business models are identical. You make a widget, you sell the widget. There's no concept of giving away shampoo for free for five years and then putting ads in the front. There's no concept of you can only buy this granola bar if you buy a five-year subscription to the granola bar company. Those are SaaS models or freemium models that are existing in, in tech where you have wildly different business models. Um, but in consumer, because it's all the same business model, it's just easier to identify or sorry, evaluate these companies. Um, there's also a tremendous amount of data that you can see from afar to understand, do you want to dig into this company? And so my first job in, in private equity, um, someone would hand me a list every week of a couple hundred companies and just literally the names of those companies. And I get onto Google and I Google these companies. 
And I would spend, after I got good at it, you spend less than 60 seconds evaluating the company. And in 60 seconds, you can see, okay, do they have decent branding? Nope, move on. Do they have a product that is just knockoff product? Yes, move on. Do they have uh, any kind of decent distribution? Are they in one Whole Foods or 400 Whole Foods? Are they in three targets or three, 300 targets? And when you do that, you can, again, in less than 60 seconds, know, should I spend time with this company? It's really hard to do that in any other industry because the data isn't as publicly available, but you can do that in the consumer space. Um, and so that was a maddening uh, realization for me because I kind of felt like my job should be done by a monkey, frankly. I mean, it just wasn't that hard. And that's not because I'm smart. It's just like the job isn't that hard to see if the company in 400 Whole Foods are one. Um, and so, you know, when we started Circle Up, one of the ideas was like, you know, can we make it easier to evaluate these companies? Um, because it, a monkey could do it. So can a computer, can, can a computer do it? And if a computer can do that, can we build that software? And that's what we've done with, with Helio. So Ryan, as we're building up to literally you find that LCC to get circle up off the run and going, I want founders to understand opportunity costs because a lot of people in your space at those private equity firms, they end up staying there for tenure for life because they make those firms make it so hard to leave. So quantify it if you can for us, how much capital did you put to work at Encore between 2007 and 2011? Oh, Wow. Range is that's fine. a great. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I know the answer to that question off the top of my head. You know, order of magnitude, we invested. I don't know as a team. So I, I would never say it was definitely not just me. It was you know seven ish people in the team. Uh, order of magnitude, somewhere between seventy five, one hundred and twenty five million dollars. And how um, many founders that, were you directly working with and had real decision making responsibility because you were on the board? How many boards were you on when you left? Um, I think I was on four boards, maybe I'd have to go back and look, um, going to five. Um, and we were about to start raising our next fund and I was, a, I, I was going to be an MD in that fund. And they were saying very, very positive things. Um, it's a hell of a seat. It's a hell of a seat. I'm not going to lie. Well, Ryan, tell, tell, a, so give us the final number, the icing on the cake. So quantify, how much were you making the, the year before you left all in? I, um, more than I, uh, more, more, more than I make per year now, uh, <laughs> frankly, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing, um, job. It was an amazing job for a few reasons. The hours were great. Um, I worked less than 40 hours a week and I probably was on ESPN.com 10 times a day. Um, <laughs> the money was fantastic and I loved who I worked with. You know, when I left, um, one of the two founders of that firm cried in his office. Scott That's not Robert. common. Uh, that's not common. He's not going to say <laughs> that, that that's not common in the consumer space or sorry, in, in private equity. Right. So like, that's really touching. You, you can't imagine a better situation than that. And, um, I decided to leave because I wasn't fulfilled. That's not a knock on anyone at that firm or anyone in doing that job today. It just wasn't fulfilling for me. And, you know, each year, um, for several years in a row, um, and, and look, I, this is probably going to come across as arrogant, but I, I just want to be transparent. Like for several years in a row, I was the top rated investment professional at the firm. And, measured by what? Um, uh, measured by them. But like, what's uh, the metric? What's the metric? Is there some? Uh, uh, I don't know. It just that's what they said. So um, probably either uh, performance of the deals or or my performance in sourcing or something like that. I'm not sure, uh, but that's 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 what they said. I don't have the same metrics that they. I, I didn't have the evaluation of all the other. Anyway, that's not the, the the point I'm trying to make is like it couldn't have gone any better. And yet afterwards, I still, you know, and I get my yearly bonus or a deal would go well or whatever it was, I would still 
go and spend time with friends and never tell talk to them about work. I was always ashamed at what I was working on. I wasn't proud of anything I was doing, even when it couldn't have gone any better. Mm-hmm. And that was just a really sad realization for me. It's almost like I was living two different lives. Like I got, I'm super excited about spending time with friends, but I never wanted to talk about work. And I'd always just kind of brush it off no matter how it went. And, and I eventually realized like, I'm just not proud of what I'm building. I'm not proud of what I'm doing with my life. And yes, I'm making money and the money was great, but I'm not proud of what I'm doing. Um, and so that led me to go through a really long exercise <clears throat> with my wife or then girlfriend, now wife, um, Kim, who we kind of bought some giant, you know, poster size post-it notes. And each weekend for several weeks in a row, we spend hours walking through like, what do I care about and why? Um, and that exercise helped lead me to start circle up. You're 30 years old. I believe in 2011, you Kim, you're together, but not married yet. Bring Rory into the picture. Your co-founder at circle. How'd you guys meet? We met the first day of business school, I think. Um, so Duke, Duke connection. Oh, no, no business school at Stanford. Sorry. Oh, business school at Stanford. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we met in 2002, um, fall 2002 and, or fall 2003, sorry. Um, and he, uh, I was drawn to him as a friend and then professionally, um, for, for a few reasons. Um, he is incredibly earnest. He is, you know, honest as the day is long and, uh, incredibly high integrity. Um, he is also someone who has, uh, uh, very similar values, but very different opinions about the world around us. And I loved that. He was uh, grounded in the same focus on what mattered in life, but had a different way to achieve it. And he was open to debate. So we have different political views without getting into that, especially the day after the election, Um, but uh, different political views. But we always enjoyed talking about it because both of us loved hearing the other person's perspective. And it was you know, very rare uh, in any time period, but let alone 2020 in Silicon Valley to be able to have those kind of debates without feeling like one side is being criticized. And that was always possible. Um, and so when I thought, you know, when I was thinking about doing something different, I started, I reached out to him, we started kicking ideas around and this was the idea that we came up with. And did you guys just decide to split 50, 50 equity wise at the start? Uh, effectively, it's not, not different enough to, to matter. Um, but we, uh, we came to, you know, we had a lot of hard conversations initially to see like, okay, we, we, we are friends, but can we have hard conversations? So one of the hard conversations was, um, uh, equity actually wasn't that hard, but one of the hard conversations was, you know, who should be CEO? What should our titles be? Um, and now is he type CEOs? A? I mean, you're a basketball player. You have a double knee resurgery, and then you walk on to Duke. You're persistent as hell. I mean, I assume you're going, I want to be CEO. Is he also that sort of way? Um, he's, he is competitive. He wants to be successful. He also is an incredible team player and wants what's best for the company. So I think, um, I think he we just had a conversation about our respective strengths and how we saw the other person and how we saw like, what would be the right thing for the company? Would co-CEOs be the right thing for the company? Well, let's look through history. Where has that worked? Where has it not worked? Mm -hmm. Um, What does it mean for the team when they ask a question and there's two CEOs that have different opinions, right? Um, And so we went through kind of a week long discussion about things like that. Um, And it was really productive for us to understand how do we argue? How do we debate? How do we disagree with each other? Uh, Which is incredibly valuable. In person or writing usually? What's your guys' style? In person. In person. Interesting. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I, I've seen a lot. We did not do it as much in writing. Um, I think in retrospect, that would have been a productive tool for us to add to the mix. But there's also something about just like looking each other in the eyes and, and breaking bread. Um, there is some data around breaking bread in person together. 100%. Yep. Now, there's this period between founding date and a pivot at Circle Up where you are pursuing a marketplace model. Explain to us what that means. So we had a, uh, we started Circle Up. Uh, so the, the basic thesis for Circle Up was um, amazing industry, um, massive, incredible returns, lots of entrepreneurs who we can help and have dramatic impact on uh, in terms of helping them to thrive by giving them the capital and resources that they need. Our first application on how to solve that problem was a marketplace. So the first product that we built to solve that inefficiency was a marketplace. Marketplace was a two-sided marketplace where we brought on investors, initially individual investors, writing checks on average in 2012 of $12,000 each into individual companies. And then we brought on consumer companies. And the consumer companies were all CPG companies, um, typically kind of sub-10, sub-15 million dollars in revenue um, that uh, would raise money on the marketplace. Um, and so they'd come and they'd say, we're trying to raise, let's say, a million dollars at a $4 million valuation. Here's our deck. Here's our revenue, um, et cetera. And the investors were all accredited investors. Um, uh, and then the slowly, the average check just went up. So kind of you know, 2012, the average individual investment was $12,000 and average company raised called $300,000. Next year, uh, it doubled. Year after that, it doubled. Year after that, it doubled. Um, by the end, the average investment was six figures and the average company was raising um, more than a million. I'd have to look it up. but um, And it kind of moved from like individual investors to family offices to small funds who were using this for deal flow. Um, and the uh, entrepreneurs were using it to raise capital because in that industry, because there's no Silicon Valley, it takes on average eight to 12 months to raise capital. Um, so we helped to, to eliminate some of that inefficiency with the marketplace. So let's fast forward 2012 average check size into a deal, $300,000 individual investors, average check 12 K each. Yep. Yep. That you just said it sort of doubled year over year. So let's extrapolate two years into 2014, right? Where you've got maybe average $50,000 checks from an individual investor. It was, it was actually identical. It was 48. So it went 12, 24, 48 <laughs> into, um, and then I'm forgetting a little bit, but I know it, it, three, six, ended, it, three, six, it ended in six figures. Yeah. So like 900,000 yeah, and, and the 369 didn't double each year. That kind of uh, tapped out at around a million. I'd have to go back and look. So, let, uh, so let's, let's cap this in sort of 2014. You have individual investors writing average checks of $50,000 into CPG brands. You are pure marketplace model. The average raise by a CPG brand is a million dollar round. They're doing sub 15 million revenue. Explain to me how you're making money at this point. Marketplace deal, a million dollar deal. Well, yeah, good question. And that was the fatal flaw for the product, frankly. Um, <clears throat> so we went through the process of becoming a registered broker dealer. Without boring everyone uh, that's listening, a registered broker dealer is effectively an investment bank. So you have to go through an extraordinarily painful regulatory process with FINRA um, to become a registered broker dealer. Some of you may remember that there were a lot of investment marketplaces. Uh, some of them called themselves crowdfunding platforms, equity crowdfunding platforms. Um, most of them, almost all of them, did not register as broker dealers. So they would either charge commissions and that'd be illegal, or they'd find other ways to get paid, um, maybe through the carry or through other, some other things or charging a flat fee. We decided to be a, a, a true marketplace. We wanted to take a commission. The only way to do that in the securities business is to uh, be a registered broker dealer. Um, and so that's what we did. Now, the problem with that, um, we discovered, is uh, uh, what do you charge on? So let's say you, uh, you know, Nathan is raising $500,000 and uh, great. 
we're going to charge you 8% of $500,000. Okay, great. So we're going to charge you, charge you that money. And, but, but wait, he actually raised 200 of the 500 somewhere else. I brought in, so we I, charge, I, 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 I seeded it with my best friends to make sure we'd get them out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You've got a rich uncle or best friend yeah. that gave you the money. Great. Yeah, Ryan, I don't so want to pay you 8% you? commission from my friends. I did that work. Exactly. So now what do we charge the 8% on? And that was the fatal flaw or one of the fatal flaws. And I can walk through all, a lot of them, but that was one. Um, and the issue there is like, uh, in many ways, both sides, the company and the investor has an incentive to uh, skirt around that fee. It's a gray market problem, to yeah. use a, a phrase um, in marketplaces. And that gray market problem uh, uh, was very real. Uh, we had, it's funny, we had a messaging service on the platform where you know a company would reach out to an investor or vice versa. And so we had proof sometimes that the investor would say, hey, we've never met, but I really like what you're doing. Uh, we'd love to invest. Can we talk, set up time to talk? And then that same investor two months later would say, I met them elsewhere. I didn't meet them through you guys. Mm. And so now you're and 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 the response, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to do it, but like kind of tempted to like call out some of the investors or some of the entrepreneurs. <clears throat> and both sides would say, look, if you make us pay this, we're gonna smear the company's name, we're gonna smear uh, your name publicly. It's like, well, we have proof that you met here. So what do we do? And we always dropped, we always dropped it. Um, and so it was hard to get paid. It was also hard, um, a difficult business model because, um, I think this is the biggest issue with those platforms. Um, what we call the feedback loop. So if you think of like, uh, investing in the public markets, um, you get an immediate feedback loop when you invest because either you can sell your shares, you know, a minute later, um, or because you can see a little graph that goes up and down in the public markets in the private markets that feedback loop is much, much longer. You won't get your money back for years. And you uh, can't really see the performance nearly as granularly, right? And it's just choppier. So that feedback loop leads investors to invest once or maybe twice, but then say, you know what? I'm just going to see how this goes. I'll give you an example. When Beyond Meat went public, uh, one of their investors had met Beyond Meat through us. And he responded to the original uh, introduction that we facilitated. Um, and he responded to that email when they went public and said, thanks for this intro. Okay. So he saved the email and then cutely a couple of years later responded when they went public. And he told us that he made 109 times his money. So invested a couple hundred thousand dollars, made almost $30 million on that investment. Well, the problem is it came a couple of years after we shut down the marketplace. So phenomenal investment, right? But like, doesn't do us a lot of good because he didn't put you know, 20 of that million into the rest of the marketplace. And that was the issue that kept coming up. We found companies that went on to do incredibly well, but it happened years later. And so we couldn't figure out a way to kind of uh, short circuit that. One of the, we, I'll talk about some of the things we tried. We tried an information feedback loop, making it, giving you monthly financials. We tried, and this is going to sound silly, but a product feedback loop, meaning like, okay, we're going to give you actual product for the company. Just so you know that like your investment is like building something real. And clearly that's not as good as money back in the, your pocket. And it's not as good as like seeing a, a, a statement that says your money is going up, but like it's better than nothing and nothing seemed to, to work. Let me quantify some of this. So, so 2012, do you remember the total volume close to the platform, total GMV 2012 first year? Oh yeah. Um, I don't, I can try and, 
given we've shut it down um, and I won't be criticized if I'm wrong, I, I'll, I can try and just guess. I would guess that we probably did a million in GMV the first year. Would be my okay. guess. And then fast forward to before you shut it down. What did you do the year before you shut it down? I guess 2014, 2015. Year before we shut it down, I think we did uh, 100 and something, maybe 110, 120 million. And was, GMV, that, be was that year 2014? No, um, because in total we did about 400 or 450, I think around there. Um, so maybe it was a little bit more than that, but yeah, I think we, we, that, that would have been the year 2016 or 2015. Um, I forget, but, but around then. And, and what you're saying is even, even in that best year where you did 110 million in GMV going to the platform, how much revenue were you actually, actually able to capture on that? It's a couple million bucks. It wasn't really enough. Yeah. Because of all these reasons you just gave. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, so your health starts coming in here. We're going to loop this in in a second, but let me sort of set the stage here and pull some, some quotes that you put in your article. So y- you're not doing this like all by yourself anymore. You've raised capital. You raised a 1.5 million seed round in 2012. You raised 7.5 million series A 2013, a 14 million series B in 2014. So you've got over 20 million raised by 2014. You raised another 30 million in 2015. So you got 50 million in outside capital. They're all loving the GMV model but you're not loving it. Why are investors giving you more money when you don't like the GMV model? That's a great question. Um, you get on a, uh, you, you get on a treadmill when you take venture and uh, you need to hit goals. You need to, first of all, lay out goals in order to raise the money. And then you need to go hit those goals to keep them happy and to raise the next round. And it, uh, that was the treadmill. Um, and so, you know, we uh, we realized, you know, I don't know, somewhere around 2016 or so that this, the model was broken. It just, we were selling dollars for 60 cents. Um, but talking about that with the investors around the table is hard because they backed that thesis. They backed the marketplace model. That's a heck of a model when it works. I was just really confident that it didn't work. Now, one of the problems for every founder out there is um, you, you get told like you need to be persistent. You need to you need to keep going, even if it even if it's hard. You also get told uh, there'll be times when you need you need to pivot. Well, how do you know which is which? Right, and and in the case of a marketplace, marketplaces are notoriously you know some of the hardest businesses in the world to start because you have to kind of get the flywheel spinning from both sides, and um, so when I would talk to the board and the investors about like, hey guys, I'm not sure this is working, the response often back to me would be, well, it's just always hard in the beginning. I know it's hard, but like, I don't think we're getting paid for the value we're, we're creating here. You got to stick it out, right? That kind of thing. And um, I don't think I did a good enough job of articulating to them uh, early enough why that thing wasn't wasn't working. By the way, what I should mention is for 14 months or so, in a row before we pivoted ending two or three months before we pivoted each month was a record month 8% month of month growth on average in GMV correct it, it was doing incredibly well yeah I, I think that that's if you read that then that's then that's true um, like it was doing incredibly well from that metric but the income statement the unit economics just didn't make sense right and Another problem with marketplaces is they often start the flywheel spinning by having worse economics up front, and then you build up the economics over time. And so their respo- the response sometimes from some world-class investors would be like, hey, Ryan, it'll come, it'll come. Like, 
I'm not sure, Will, I'm not sure we're going to be able to fix this fundamental issue of, you, you know, Jane Doe and John Smith are always incentivized to screw us out of that payment. And we couldn't figure out a way around that. We probably tweaked that business model 30 times. You also bring up a pattern that I have seen a ton with software interviews. We've interviewed 3,000. And by far, when I ask, you know, how have you reached scale? How have you hit 10 million in revenue? The number one answer I always hear is organic growth, word of mouth marketing, which to me, I'm hearing they don't know how they got there. You expressed, you expressed very clearly, you know, all these things going on that you've articulated, but you also said you felt a little insecure because you were so wild about the growth, but you hadn't identified where it came from. You didn't know what levers to pull or why it was coming. How much of an insecurity was that? It was so scary. It was so scary. I felt, I felt like a fraud. It was growing quickly. And I, look, I, I, I use that language with the investors. I use that language with the board. I, I said, guys, I don't understand. We don't understand the growth. Now, the response back from some of the investors was, when a marketplace works, it's growing uh, for reasons that you can't explain. Like, well, maybe that's true, but I'm telling you, that's not us right now. Like, I, we never went through the period of understanding why it would grow. Like, it just each month was bigger than bigger, but like, we didn't understand it, and I don't think it was healthy. Um, so that was a. I mean, I would. I really struggled to sleep for you know, the, the year of 2015, which I don't talk about in the blog post is before the horrible period that I talked about. Like I struggled to sleep because I'm sitting here like delivering performance to the board and then like, or the investors and, and telling them, guys, I'm worried. I know these numbers, these vanity metrics are good. I'm worried here that this isn't working. Um, were you, but you were burning your cash still at this point, right? What's, what's that? You're still burning at this point, right? Not, ca- not burning cash flow positive. Oh yeah. yeah we're burning money. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, and so, you know, those conversations are, are tricky because you don't know if they're natural insecurities that every founder and CEO has, or because there's actually something wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's 2015, you're 34 now, 30 million series C done. You're insecure about where growth is coming from, but it's coming. Great growth, great growth. 110 million bucks in GMV. You got 45 employees, you're burning cash. Are you and Kim still, are you still dating? Or are you married now? We're married. We got married in 2012. Okay, but but no kids yet in 2015, right? 2015, we have a one-year-old. Our first was born in 2014. Oh, great. Okay, very good. So one-year-old, you're married. You're not sure where growth is coming from. I'm going to quote you now. You reached a low point, which came at a board meeting at Union Square Ventures offices. You arrived 11 minutes before the board meeting started. You were so tired. You went to use the restroom. You took off your jacket, used it as a pillow, set alarm for 10 minutes, and slept with your head in front of the toilet until the bell rang. What was going through your head when the bell rang? Yeah. And I think that that was actually early 2016 because that was the start of the, um, maybe I'm, I, I don't know. Anyway, it, you, it, it could it be 2016. The, the, yeah. Yeah. The, um, what was going through my head when the bell rang? Um, I was just trying to survive, honestly, you know, um, I, I have, um, been extremely lucky to have, you know, some, some of the things you do, I think are skill and some of them are, are just pure luck. And, uh, I think some of the investors we had were just lucky. Like we just had some amazingly good investors, uh, Andy Weissman, Dan Saporin, Matt Christensen, um, Andy Weissman from USB, Dan Saporin from Canaan and, and Matt Christensen from Rose Park as three examples. Um, and they were incredibly supportive. So there were probably periods where I should have, including that one felt just pure fear. 
but it was more um, just wanting to survive. And I was so strung out, it was really hard for me to like just make it through um, the day. So um, that's it. Yeah, it was just a, a pure focus on getting through the day. You're also trying to have child number two at this point. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Um, we had um, uh, some really big fertility issues, um, uh, which were um, lasted about a year or so. Um, and that uh, that was that was really hard for me. Um, and, uh, you know, my story has been tricky for me to talk about because I know there are people that are worse off. There are people that wanted kids and couldn't have them. Um, and, uh, but I also don't want to not share it, um, for fear that mine isn't the worst story. Um, because if it were the worst story, I don't think it would be as relatable, frankly. Um, so we were able to make it through the period. Um, but that year of the fertility problems, um, was very stressful and, and heartbreaking and, and, um, and difficult for us. And it was probably, it was, it was the hardest year of my life for a number of different reasons that we'll talk about. Um, but having kids has always been, uh, something that I have cared a lot about. Um, and being a good dad and, and building a good family. Um, and I talk about this a little bit in the post, but don't go into that much detail. It has influenced what jobs I've taken, uh, things I've done with my body and not done with my body. Um, uh, I, you know, never done drugs or smoked a cigarette in part. Um, just maybe it's irrational. I don't care. Um, but just like it's a focus, it's always been a focus since I was late teens on, um, on having a family. Um, and, not being able to do it and going through the pain of those fertility issues, um, was, uh, just a lot of tears, um, as a, as a family, um, with my wife and I. So that was difficult. A lot of you guys will ping me out of the blue at asking for help selling your software companies, but I'm not a broker and I'm really focused on founder path right now, not helping folks sell their company. So I'm always looking for great tools to recommend for you guys to quickly figure out what you could potentially sell your company for and how much cash you could get. That's where Flippa comes in. Now, here's my thing about brokerages, especially for selling your company. You guys should not have to pay a 10% brokerage fee when you put your blood, sweat, and tears into building your company for years that have a sale. All smart founders know, though, that the best way to maximize price is to have multiple options. So how do you get multiple options, multiple bids on your company without paying a broker 10% or more? Well, I recommend Flippa because they have the largest list of buyers for these sorts of digital assets, which almost always guarantees a bidding war. I tell my founder friends all the time to try Flippa's valuation calculator to see what their company is worth. And I encourage you guys to do it today. Go to nathanlacka.com forward slash Flippa right now to test out the valuation calculator for free. That's nathanlacka.com forward slash F-L-I-P-P-A. On top of that, there's a lot of testing involved with fertility and you're pivoting the business. Uh, you're exhausted. Uh, there's fertility issues. The business model is not working. You're not sure why. You're executing a pivot. We're going to circle back to the business in a second, but you heard two words that would scare the living hell out of any 
human during those fertility treatments, which were, Ryan, two tumors. And so we'll come back to that because you're juggling so much. You've now pivoted and convinced the board to get on board with moving away from marketplace. What's the new business model you're launching? To figure that out, um, Rory and I sat in a room. Uh, uh, we actually were moving offices to a larger office, and we sat in a room in the new office by ourselves for I don't know several several days, um, and just tried to go through the process of laying out like what are the assets we have, um, not in a balance sheet standpoint, but just like what are the things that we have that are good, right? So what are the things that we have that are bad, but certainly what are the things that we have that have some kind of value. So for example, we had a bunch of cash in the bank. Okay. That's a good thing, presumably. Um, and, uh, you, you had 25 we, million cash in the bank. Most of the 30 million yeah. you just raised. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, one of the things we identified as an asset was this technology. And we believed that the existing business model, the marketplace didn't work but the technology Helio that we've been working on for a couple of years at that point, we were really confident it worked. It identified some amazing brands and some of those brands wanted to work with us. Some of them didn't. Some of the ones we worked with didn't raise money. Some of them did, et cetera, et cetera. But like, actually let's walk through that funnel. So everyone understand like how, why we were so down in the marketplace. Helio would identify, uh, let's say a hundred great brands of those hundred great brands, you know, 20 might want to work with us of the 20, 10 would actually successfully raise money in the marketplace of those 10, maybe three would actually pay us. So we're getting paid three cents on the dollar. One way to think about it in terms of all the brands that Helio, this technology was finding and identifying and evaluating algorithmically. Um, and that business model has made no sense to us. So we, um, we thought, you know, the best way to do this um, would be to license the technology. Let's license it to other folks because the technology works. Well, when you start thinking about that, if you know private investing, private investors always think that they're the smartest people in the room. And so telling them that they should trust their gut less and trust this technology more was uh, a pretty daunting proposition. And when we had talked with investors about that in the past, it was very frequently, well, you know, I know this technology says Halotop, the ice cream company is a great company and the data looks great, but honestly, Ryan, if you tasted it, it doesn't taste good. And consumer investors would always like ex extrapolate their preferences on, uh, on, on the company or sorry, on the investment decision. And I don't like the taste. Thus, no one will like the taste regardless of the data. Um, and what they miss is that the data was identifying that the company is performing exceptionally well on a different dimension of quality. In the case of Halo Top as an example, the other dimension of quality was the fact that the entire pint was 250 calories versus Haagen-Dazs or, or Ben and Jerry's, which would be 1200 calories. So it gives you permission to eat the whole pint. That's the unlock. That's why the company was doing so well. But how do you invest into an ice cream company that doesn't taste good, right? So that, um, that made it difficult for us to think about how to license the technology. We said, well, we've got a lot of um, proof that the technology works, not just companies we worked with, but we actually just show you the precision and recall to terms from data science that like this thing works exceptionally well. Well, when you go try and talk to a private investor that is in Excel about precision and recall and all these data science terms, like they laugh, they have no idea what the heck you're talking about. Um, and that just roadblock after roadblock in terms of licensing that at that point in time. So you thought, all right, let's, let's eat our own dog food here. We believe in it. So let's, let's raise our own money. And so that's what we did. We raised a, first a venture fund, then we raised a credit fund. Um, uh, and now we are actually beginning to license the technology, but it's only after we've proven that the thing works really, really well 
in part by delivering phenomenal uh, performance through our own funds. How much was the initial raise on the venture fund, the equity? The initial raise uh, for the venture fund uh, was 125 million. It was from fantastic investors um, that came into that, um, and that's a typical venture fund. It's a two and twenty fund, um, and uh, the fund has performed very well. Um, it is marked, and for those of you in, in venture or private equity, you know marks don't mean a lot, but I'll just tell you what the data is. It's marked as a top quartile fund. Um, we just had a, a world-class exit um, after two and a half years. Which um, one? Uh, Liquid IV sold to Unilever. Um, and uh, I think one of the most exciting things about that fund is it's marked as a top quartile fund. I think it was a top decile fund. Um, amongst all venture, by the way, not just consumer. Do they attach an venture. IRR to those to those percentiles? What's that? Do they do they publish an IRR, a realized IRR, or a marked up IRR? With they those do. Percentiles? They do. Me talking about it right now will be difficult publicly. Frankly, okay. um, there's um, some issues around that, um, but they do. Um, and so people could actually just go to Cambridge Associates and look up what the top quartile is, and then you could kind of back into what we have. Is it more than thirty percent? Uh, can you say anything? I, I know. I, can I honestly can. Okay, uh, that's fine. Um, so, but but here the point I was trying to make is. Um, I think the most exciting thing about that technology, or sorry, the, the fund, is that no one on that team ever led a deal before joining Circle Up. So we have a phenomenal team there, like smart, hardworking, high integrity folks, really great team. But what we did not do on purpose was we did not take people that have been running consumer uh, private equity or consumer venture funds for 25 years and then give them this technology. Yep. We gave folks that had never led a deal. And so when you can do that, it's a heck of a demonstration of the power of the technology. That's the equity um, fund, the 125 equity. Talk to me about debt. What was the first debt fundraise? So the credit fund we raised, um, it uh, finished up in 2019, um, or, or the, the fundraising did. Uh, it is about 60 in equity and 150 in back leverage. So the way to think about it in apples to apples basis is effectively a $200 million fund. Um, and also fantastic investors. And that has, uh, had really, really strong returns as well in that, in that industry and in credit, they typically don't mention like quartiles and whatnot. Um, but the returns have been fantastic. 60 million. I mean, is that like essentially first loss capital? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's more like when we invest, then we also have the back leverage to help juice the returns for the equity. Right. So we do oh. have, a, uh, yeah. So oh, the 60 million comes from 60 million comes from a certain set of institutional investors externally. Um, we do have um, some of our own money off our uh, off the circle up balance sheet as well into that. Okay, so so when did you do your first debt deal at Circle Up? The first deal we started this as a, a an MVP um, uh, two folks at Circle Up, um, Asher Hoshberg and, and Emma Stubbs, um, who uh, uh, started this in 2017 as kind of like a test. Frankly, like we're seeing a lot of deal flow. Equity is a smaller market than credit. Why not give some of these companies credit? So what'd you um, give MS Dubs? I'm sorry? sorry. What'd you give it? So MS Dubs, you gave them one of the first tests. What was the size of the debt, debt instrument? Um, we had a, a warehouse line. Um, so we started with just a couple million bucks, honestly. A couple million bucks. Let's test it out. They, Those two, and Emma's still with us, actually. Um, they, uh, they started by uh, just reaching out to companies or companies that were asking for equity, hey, you know, you're not a fit of equity, would credit make sense for you, et cetera. Um, and just beginning to test, like, is there a market here? Does Is Helio good at evaluating these companies? Do we have an edge here, et cetera, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Did the warehouse, I mean, the reason I'm asking these questions is to raise to what you published was essentially a $200 million 
credit fund, right? Closed in 2019. In order to do that, you've got to build some sort of loan tape to show yeah. some extrapolation of losses, et cetera. So I'm trying to understand how you built momentum to get to the 200 million. So we started, we convinced a, a group um, to give us a, a warehouse line um, and it started, yeah, it was a couple million bucks at first, right? Yep. Um, and so they let us loan from that. When, what was your cost capital had, though on that? Um, call it 10%. It was in that neighborhood. That's not, that's not a horrible deal at all. I mean, you, if you know the metrics, it wasn't like the clear bank, the, the 250 million dollar debt financing upper 90 behind that. I mean, it was way higher yeah. uh, than 11 for 10, 10%. I mean, how yeah. did you convince people to give you money at 10%? Oh, we had data that showed that the, we and the technology were really good at evaluating these companies. Um, but so no loan that's one yet. reason. Another reason is that these companies were backed by the ARs, purchase orders, inventory, uh, you know, we, you we weren't really, really underwriting, underwriting the company, company always in terms of credit risk. risk. The, it was, it was that you're backing the AR from Whole Foods or Walmart. Factoring. It, it, effectively, for the sake of this conversation, yes. Um, and that, that's, that's a really good loan. Well, Ryan, was, it, was it 10%? Loan. Was it clean? I mean, were there warrant, were there kickers in the equity side of the business that they um, got? Yeah, there, there was, um, there, there was uh, some small warrants in the company. Um, and uh, I think I maybe it started actually at 11% and then moved down to 10%. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look. Um, but it was, early, it was a good deal. Off, yeah. It was a good deal. Um, and so we kind of proved it out for the next year or so um, that uh, this was a good loan, frankly. Um, and then we raised the fund. So 2017, just to summarize, before we go back to health, 2017, $125 million venture fund raise as you're shifting away from the marketplace. You're going to do your own deals, two and 20 yep. typical fund. You get a couple million dollar warehouse line at 10%, right? Which you start doing some early tests on the debt side. Did you raise any equity that year for the, the core business? In 2017? Yeah, for operating capital. Yes. Like a, yeah, we did. Okay, how much did you raise there? Another 30. Okay, got it. So, so you haven't announced that yet. That's new information, correct? Not on crunch. I think base. I put it. I think I put it in the blog, um, but we never we never had a big announcement about it. No, got it. But that is that thirty million different than the Series C thirty million in twenty fifteen. Yes. Okay, so yes. there's another thirty million. Yes. So you you were proving something during this pivot that got those people that put in thirty million in twenty seventeen to get excited about what you were doing. Who who led that round? Which investor? Uh, TPG and Tomasic. Okay, interesting. Okay, got it. Okay, now let's fast forward. You're doing all this, and you get a report back from these fertility things that say, hey, Ryan, we need you to come back in. Tumors. We see tumors. What's going through your head at this point? What happened? Well, he told me it. Um, he he said, I, I went in to get um, the results from the tests and I, I had no idea that they were looking at cancer. We were just trying to figure out what the issue was. Um, and he said, look, I, I found something else. Um, um, and it was, it was very much an out-of-body experience, frankly. Um, you know, he said two tumors. Um, he was confident that they were malignant. They ended up being malignant. Um, that was not, um, I mean, I'm embarrassed about this, but I actually didn't know what that word meant. Um, and so I had to Google that on my phone. Um, and uh, I don't remember what else he said. Um, I remember uh, shaking and when I was holding the pen to sign out um, from the office, I remember taking the elevator and going and, and crying with a nurse that then needed to draw more blood for more tests. Um, I remember calling my wife um, outside the uh, the hospital, um, but I don't remember what else he said. It was a it was a very I it really felt out of body. It felt like I was looking down at this conversation from afar. And this was this is late 2017 at this point. 
Uh, no, this was uh, this was 2016. Still 2016. And so okay. this was yeah, this was in the heart of the the pivot. So the six month, you know, you you have a boy around this time. Did the boy come during or after the cancer? Boy came. Boy came afterwards. Um, so the boy was born. The first boy. We have three kids. So the girl was born in 2014. Um, uh, then the middle child, a boy, was born in 2017, uh, and then another boy born last year. So talk to me now about this the state of your brain, your health, you've, you've conquered cancer. I, right. 2017, 2018. Is that, is it conquered at that point? Um, that's a, uh, that's a hard word to respond to, frankly. I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know. It's a loaded I don't know how to respond to that word conquered. Um, I, uh, I am, the tests are clear. Um, and, uh, you know, someone, someone asked me the other day, last week, a, a very close friend of ours, um, you know, do you, would you want to be referred to as a cancer survivor? And I have, um, a lot of guilt with that term because my cancer, while it was very scary for me and for my family, um, was not the worst thing that you can get. Uh, and, uh, there were people in much, much worse situations than I am. Um, and so like, I mean, I've gotten, since I put that post out, I've probably gotten 500 emails, probably 400 of them about the, about the post, um, maybe 600 and, and, you know, 80, 90% of those emails are from people telling their story. You know, it's five, six, seven paragraphs about I had cancer, I had brain cancer, I had, I lost a child, I had this, I, and they're almost always a lot worse than mine. Um, and they are very nice in the emails, like, look, you, you, your post resonated with me. I feel less lonely because of your post. But from my standpoint, like, I feel really sheepish about talking about what I went through because people went through such worse things. In the post, I talk about, I forget, I think it's in the post. Um, I talked about there was a point where um, I was at the Stanford hospital and I was getting, uh, going through the same kind of questions that they always would put me through. Um, and this time I just kind of flipped out and started screaming because I just didn't want to answer the same questions that I answered every single time, 20 visits in a row. And what I didn't put in the post, but I'll share with you now is um, they called the COO of the hospital and the COO of the hospital came in and said, um, uh, very professionally, and very appropriately, even though it may not sound like it in the way I'm going to tell the story, uh, said, you know, maybe this hospital is not right for you. Um, and she said it in a uh, very empathetic way. And her point was like, look, there are people in the rooms next to you that are vomiting right now that are going to die. And we feel really confident about your prognosis. Your case is not one in 10 million. Those are the other people on this floor right now. So like when you have to wait an, half, an hour and a half, which I had to wait that day, or you have to answer the same questions again, please recognize that like, we're not trying to be mean to you. It's because someone else just had an emergency here. And maybe the hospital across the street would be a better fit for you. Um, and frankly, she was right. Like it was inappropriate for me to be doing that. Um, but when you know, you talk about like conquering it, like, I don't know, man, like that's a, that's a word that someone who went through much tougher stuff than I went through, um, I think has the right to use. And I feel insecure about using it. And when did your treatment stop? Did you go through treatments? 
I went through um, surgery, um, uh, meaningful surgery, um, and uh, but I did not have to have um, chemo. Um, and then since then, I've just had to have more MRIs and CAT and CT scans than I can remember. So, what year uh, did the surgery sort of stop? 2016. Um, and then since then it's been just a long, steady state of MRIs and CT scans. Dan from Canaan in 28, early 2018, I think at a board meeting or an email, you say, he said, Ryan, I've never seen in my career as CEO or, or sorry, a CEO as worn out as you, please. You need a sabbatical at least six weeks. It talks about false grit. You talk about this concept in reboot. What was the state of just your energy at that time? Was the pivot working? Were you at least excited about that? What was the state of your, your just emotions and health? Um, my, uh, mental and emotional health was beyond, um, so bad. It's, it's kind of hard to convey, frankly. Um, I was, I was not healthy. I was, I was very, very, very unhealthy, um, mentally and emotionally. And, um, I am blessed. I'm, I'm a pretty religious guy. I'm, I feel very blessed by God that I was surrounded by people, my wife, my parents are, you know, Dan, Andy, Matt, who, you know, frankly dealt with, um, dealt with me, uh, in a very empathetic and, and, uh, productive way. Um, and look, they all have jobs to do, um, Dan, Andy, Matt. So I'm not, I'm not saying this is all like, uh, apple pie and rainbows, but, um, I thought that they did it with a lot of courage and empathy. I mean, there were more than a few conversations when, you know, Dan would let me lose it or, you know, Matt or someone would let me lose it and wait till I was done. And then like, okay, let's keep going. And I needed that. Like I, I, I didn't feel like I could do that with the team. I feel like that would, I, the team didn't know that I had cancer. Um, uh, they found out earlier this year when I told them before the blog post, um, but they, the, the board knew that I had cancer and they let me just be myself. Um, and so I feel really blessed that they were dealing with that in terms of like how I felt. I mean, it's, it's, I felt beyond strung out. It was bone on bone for so long. I felt lost. I felt dead. Um, it was a very, very, very dark place for me. Was the pivot working, but you still felt dead? You know, an issue with, um, my mentality is, um, that was exacerbated over the last few years is, um, I am never, this is going to sound like a, a, a humble brag or, you know, when someone gets asked in a job interview, what's your greatest weakness? And you say, I'm a perfectionist and that's bullshit. Um, sorry. Can I, sorry. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, when I was, uh, my high school yearbook, they asked for a quote for everyone. My quote in the high school yearbook was, um, never be satisfied or you'll stop improving. I think that's very representative of how I've lived my life. Now, the problem with that mentality is if you're never satisfied, it's really hard to be happy. So when you ask me, is the, was the pivot working? Well, it's working enough to get a lot of money from some world-class investors. 
right? It was working enough that if you look at the people we hired, it was phenomenal the, the folks we were able to attract. I mean, I, I more than a few board members and major investors said it was one of the best teams they've ever seen um, and, and still is. Um, but I was never happy. And that is part of what led to this unhealthiness. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of people would say it was working really well um, and kind of amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the board members said, look, you, if you can execute on what you're saying, he said this at the beginning of 2017, you can execute on this, what you're saying, you're going to walk into the Q4 board meeting this year, like a conquering hero. And we exceeded what we had laid out there. Um, so from that standpoint, a lot of people would say, yes, from my standpoint, it never felt, never felt like it. Well, let's dig a little bit here. 2019 of the 125 million in sort of equity fund you raised in 2017, how much had you deployed at that point? 2019, two years later. Um, uh, 50%, maybe 60%. Um, I, an issue with why the deployment would be slower is slower than it is for a typical venture fund is we actually had to hire the team. We had to bring everyone on. Um, we also had to build a process. We had to help train people how to use this technology. And so it was just a bit slower the first year and a half out of the gate than it should have been. Um, but call it 50%. Same on the debt side. How much? How much loan tape did you have late end of 2019? I uh, I don't know if we've ever uh, announced that. I'd have to go back and look. I'd prefer not to hear them. Okay. Um, the 200 million dollar debt financing that you announced, though, was that all just extrapolating on the initial five, you know, couple million dollar warehouse line you had, or were these different sort of SPVs you set up and you raised in tranches? Um, I, I think probably the easiest way for the audience to think about it would be like shut down the warehouse line. Um, then raise this thing kind of concurrently, just move it all from what A to B. They, they bought the loan tape essentially, which means you yeah, would only really yeah, do yeah, that exactly. if it was yeah, at better terms. Was the capital cheaper than 10%? Little, it was a little bit cheaper, um, but not, not, yeah, a little bit cheaper because we did begin proving it out. And so it continues to get a little bit better. Um, yeah. I, I want to touch a little bit on fintech because it would be just irresponsible not to with your background, right? Ant obviously just pulled their IPO. People, you know, feel very strongly about Chime. Some say feels way overvalued, way undervalued. We know what happened with Lending Club, right? They were essentially doing debt deals, but not taking any of the deal themselves. So they didn't have any risk. Lendio tried it, then went back to full marketplace model because the margins were better. You went the opposite way. Like Lendio made the marketplace work, right? And avoided Mm -hmm. balance sheet risk. You did the opposite. Mm -hmm. You shut down the marketplace. You couldn't get the margins to work and the attribution to work. So now you have balance sheet risk. Yeah, you're you're combining a couple different really meaty issues into that, um, which I think each could be ten minute answers. So let me <laughs> let me just start with a couple things. First, um, I think an issue with a lot of the kind of fintech 1.0 companies was there actually isn't any technology behind them. They're marketing companies, and so like how without talking about any one company and specifically like how many of them would evaluate loans, um, they'd say well, we have a thousand data points from all this data. It was FICO. They just use FICO. Um, and I know that. Um, so, and they spend huge portions of their sales on marketing. Um, so then you're just kind of like, well, what am I really buying here as an investor? If this thing doesn't have any technology, doesn't the technology doesn't provide value to, to us as investors. And so that, that, that's a core issue that I think um, is, by the way, I think still prevalent in, in um, many of the fintech companies, but certainly was, was pervasive in the kind of fintech 1.0 uh, companies. 
Um, a, a second issue, though, like in terms of the marketplace versus balance sheet, warehouse line, like it's so funny you say that. I have had so many conversations with leading CEO, uh, CEOs of leading um, fintech companies about this point. And everyone privately feels pretty insecure about their answer. <laughs> like everyone's kind of like, I'm not really sure what the right answer is. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to tell you, we're not really sure. Like it's, I don't know. Each of them has advantages and disadvantages, but it's not clean cut. Like it should be a marketplace. Yes. Marketplaces get valued more highly. And like, there's a reason that lending club is pivoting away from peer to peer. Right. And, and moving towards and funding circle, the same thing and moving towards like large institutions investing in. So isn't that effectively a fund anyway? Um, because marketplace model, while everyone originally thought it would be stickier, turns out people writing $1,000 checks is not stickier than a large institution. Um, large endowment or whatnot. So I think um, if I if I were going to be totally straight, I, I think if we believed a marketplace would have worked for us, we would have wanted to do that. <clears throat> um, we had experience running marketplaces. I think we're, I think we're pretty good at understanding marketplaces, um, even though that one did not succeed. I think we learned a lot and I think we'd be very good at it. Um, I was just skeptical it would work, really. And, and not, not work in the first two years, but work in year 10. Because every trend at that point was getting away from like the supply side of the marketplace, um, meaning the, the investors and moving towards like just two or three buyers or securitizing business, whatever it was. Like that, that led me to just say, well, why is it a marketplace at all then? That doesn't, how is this a marketplace if you've got two or three buyers in one end? Um, so I don't have a clear cut answer for you other than to be transparent. We probably would have done it if we thought it would, would have worked. I'm very skeptical that anyone over time is going to build that marketplace in a way that it looks like a true marketplace in a way that marketplaces typically get high valuations by having, by consolidating um, fragmented supply and demand. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we, we end up doing the fund model. The unit economics are fantastic. Um, they're, they're pretty amazing. Um, and uh, we think we can scale it just as effectively as a marketplace. When you look at unit economics on a balance sheet level, the trend you're seeing right now are folks raising gobs of capital, cost capital around, say, 10%. They lend it at the exact same. There's no yield, but they raise equity-like valuations because they're deficit spending right now, hoping they back into profitability later. Thoughts? Don't get it. Don't get it. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't like it. It absolutely baffles me. And we're talking and, billion dollars. We're not talking little. Com we're talking like some of these with like it's phantom. It's like billion dollar sort of valuations. Yeah, yeah. And and I would always not want to criticize specific companies. And I know you're not doing that either. No, so yeah. I'm going to try and say this vaguely enough. Um, like <laughs> I think in some of those cases, um, they believe the investors believe that that is a customer acquisition vehicle to give those same companies something else at a higher margin. Right. Okay. Um, but you're kind of pricing it to perfection at that point where, you know, if, if the, if the core product is zero margin and I, by the way, you're right, or technically negative margin, it is negative margin. Um, then like, you really got to believe a lot from those ancillary products that you're going to launch. Um, and so what's the proof that that will work and what's the proof that the company that your customer wants and trusts you enough to buy those other products from you. Um, so, but in general, I think, uh, I, I think that the, there's a lot of investors making massive mistakes doing that right now. Looping back to your model and then talking about health and then wrapping up here, is this statement true? Your Circle Up Credit Advisor Fund is targeting a 12 to 20% APR at lower than a 10% cost of capital for yourself. So your yield there, you have caught 800 to 1,000 points of yield there if you do it correctly. You're not deficit spending to grow GMV. 
Well, but we have fixed costs. Um, we have we have a team, right? So when when you say we're not deficit spending, um, the math you just worked out excludes that we have a team of people plus the whole technology, the team of people like you know sales marketing folks that are deploying this plus um, the technology team. So we we need to prove out a lot, frankly. We're, we have not yet proved out enough that this is a model. Um, you know, let's go take it from two hundred million to two billion or twenty billion. Um, when we have, I'd love to come back on and tell you that, but we're, we're not there yet. We've got a lot to prove. So true or false, the credit advisor business, I mean, could you argue it's a loss leader to get more data and to fuel deal flow for your equity business? You know, that's an interesting question. We've thought about that in the past. Like maybe we should drop the rate even further in order just to get data. Um, Cause you already have the high margin business. That's the key difference between you and other fintech companies today. Yeah, right. You already right. have no, the high margin thing to sell. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting that you recognize that most people don't like the, the, you know, most venture funds, um, kind of like 50 to 60% net contribution margin. I mean, these things mint money, like it's an unbelievable profit pool. Um, yes. Now look, we've, we've talked about it. Um, I think the reason you wouldn't want to do that is because credit is such a bigger, uh, opportunity than equity. There's just more companies that should take credit. Um, then then you take equity. And so if your loss leader is 80% of the market, um, I think we're giving away too much value there. I think we, I think if we do this right, we should be able to find a way that the, that credit product should still be uh, profitable. Um, and look on a gross margin, it's wildly profitable. My point to you is just like, we need to figure out a way so that it is on a net contribution margin profitable as well and growing and big. It's 2019, you're 38, 39, about to turn 40. You come home, your daughter, five-year-old daughter says, Daddy, you always look so sad. What happened after? She said it, um, she said it uh, more than once. Um, look, I think I'd love to tell you that the first time I stopped in my tracks and I changed everything, but I didn't. Um, Kids sometimes will say something that, uh, you know, they're not sure they mean, I mean, you know, she's also told me and, uh, my wife that, you know, we don't like her or that she doesn't like us. I mean, it's a six year old, right? So, um, and I probably told myself that that was the case. Um, then when she said it again and again, uh, I just kind of thought back to like why it was important for me to have kids in the first place and like, what am I doing? What, what, what why I'm not doing this for money? Um, I do think it'll be phenomenally financially successful, but frankly, like leaving the job in private equity makes no economic sense. You're just almost guaranteed a massive amount of money. So I had already made the decision that I wasn't doing circle up for money, even if it turns out. So what, what am I doing it for? I'm doing it to help other people. But if it's at the cost of like my daughter seeing her dad unhappy, what is the lesson that that teaches her? Um, and it took me a couple of weeks. She said it, she said it, uh, two or three times over the course of a couple of weeks. And it took me, you know, maybe two or three weeks for it to like kind of sink in. And that led me to write the email to our board. Um, and so one of the emails that's included in that blog is the email unedited that I wrote to our board saying, um, I need to step away. I need to not be CEO of this company anymore. Um, and that was a, it, it came after a meeting. I called a meeting to talk about it first. Um, and so we talked about it at length and then I memorialized it in that email. Um, and that was a very hard thing to do. I was very, very scared. Um, but I think her question was 
her question was just the straw that gave me the confidence and, and courage to do it. Mm-hmm. As we wrap up, you did some things along the way that I think a lot of other founders are trying to do, but they just sometimes don't know. Ed Batista, a coach. How did you find him? How can someone listening right now find someone as impactful to them as Ed was to you and is to you? I um, am a part, or I was a part um, of a, uh, a CEO peer group called Leaders in Tech. I would highly recommend it. It's phenomenal. Um, and in that group, one of my um, peers uh, in this you know, kind of eight to 10 person uh, CEO group um, recommended him. And it's a peer I have a lot of respect for. I'm not going to say who for confidential reasons, but he uh, he recommended him and I I, uh, I mean, he's an absolute gift from God. Ed has, and look, there's others that are phenomenal too, but Ed's been amazing for me. Um, it's funny in the, in the post, um, in the, in the blog post, there's a picture of me signing the offer letter for the new CEO on the computer. And if you look closely in the background, you'll see a, a white sticky note and I'll show it to you right now. It's the audience can't see this, but it's we'll, a, put, a we'll, we'll, we'll edit it in because I've got it up too. It's a, it's a, it's I can't read it actually either. I see the sticky note, but I can't read what it says. It says you are in the fourth quarter, mm. and so what that is is Ed um, during the last year or so since I sent that email to the board, Ed and I were trying to figure out how to do this, and there were times when I would meet with Ed. My management coach, when I'd say, like, I'd just be, you know, I can't, we can't figure this out. There's no way for me to like step away. I'm the key man of these funds. And like, you know, we need to raise money. How can I step away at the same time we need to raise money? And all so many conflict era, uh, complicated issues. And at one of the, in one of the meetings, he's like, um, cause he, he knows I played basketball in, in college. And he said, Ryan, stop. You worked really hard for a long period of time to get to this moment. Everyone's aligned and making this happen. You're in the fourth quarter. Just get through this. And that was like a, okay, I've been in the fourth quarter before. I can get through this. Um, uh, and that that was really, really helpful. So how do you find, I think you talk to other CEOs about management coaches they use. That'd be my recommendation to find a, a great management coach. And Ryan, the last piece I want to talk here, you quote in your article, you say, Nathan, you say, folks, listen, inventor doubt isn't respected. And this is actually contrary from what, so Jim McKelvey was on before you, the prior episode, founder of Square with Jack Dorsey. And he'll say, by far, the best feedback they ever got as a company was in their seed deck. And it was a slide that listed 140 reasons why Square would fail. In fact, they put the doubt so far forward and owned it that he credits a lot of stripes Square's early success to that. There's others on the other side that say, you never want to show any doubt at a board meeting or to venture. Which one is it? What's the right approach? Well, look, I mean, t- with, with all due respect to that Square story, like um, Jack had done something beforehand. You know, the other story that I heard about the Square fundraise was it was pretty damn quick because of what he had done previously. Um, so a first-time entrepreneur sharing that same page might have a different response, but that's not really, um, that's, a, that's a different, slightly different point than the one that I made about d- doubt not being respected. Let me, uh, I think it's probably best send up in a story which is when I was thinking about publishing this, this blog, I shared it with a bunch of folks. Some of those people are mentioned in uh, the bottom of uh, the blog. And uh, there, were, there were three VCs who uh, I did not mention. I love these people, but I did not mention them. Um, and uh, the three VCs said, uh, hey, look, love it. It's very emotional. You should know you will be dead to Sequoia when you write this. You'll be dead to a VC. And their logic is VCs, and I'm not speaking about Sequoia, I'm saying like VCs in general as a macro point, um, 
tend to make money by convincing entrepreneurs to give up everything. You know, if you, if you read the, the post, I'm actually not saying that you shouldn't make huge sacrifices. I'm just saying that the way I did it didn't work. The way I did it wasn't emotionally healthy. I should have gotten support earlier. I should have found this leaders in tech group. I should have found a management coach earlier. I should have done a lot of different things earlier. So I'm not saying that, but a lot of people could read it as, you know what? You, you don't give up everything. There, there's more important things in life. Whether or not I believe that isn't the point. I think that's how people will read it. And that is kind of antithetical to what a lot of VCs uh, celebrate and what they believe is critical to uh, being successful. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was conscious that me putting it out there might lead VCs to never want to fund me again, or maybe, you know, if I decide to be a VC myself, maybe they don't want to hire me or whatever, but, uh, I was really lonely going through the period and I wanted to create content for other founders who have gone through anything similar or can just like read this and feel less lonely going through their own stuff. Um, even if it leads to some people, particularly in VC, to not want to work with me about it. Guys, Ryan Caldbeck, born in Vermont from maple syrup and cheddar cheese to mark, <laughs> to mark, to marketplaces, to pivots, to toilets before board meetings, to a $200 million debt fund, 125 million credit fund, all fo- equity fund focused on, again, that CPG space, a crazy product called Helio. And most importantly, managing his mental health now successfully working on the transition out of the baby he created. We'll see what happens next. Ryan Caldbeck, thanks for taking us to the top. Thanks so much for having me.